Welcome to Grace Point. I hope that uh, we're not the first church you slipped into today, but uh, maybe it was a divine appointment. If you were going somewhere else and your car just took you here, then uh, then hopefully uh, God will teach you and meet you at the point of your greatest need today. That would be our earnest and prayerful desire in this day. We are finishing up, if you're just joining us, if we're finishing up a, a series of messages uh, that's actually only part of finishing it up because we have been in a series of messages and will continue till the month of May on the expedition that God has called us to and, and laying and, and chartering this new course that, that, that God has for us. It's not, Christianity is not a boring faith. It's actually a quite adventuresome, challenging, life-altering if we truly live it out. And one of those key components of the Christian faith is learning how and practicing worship. It is that it's when we go to the depths, you think of Jacques Cousteau, you think of these great expeditionists who, who go to the depths of the ocean and explore the Titanic or whatever. Well, think of worship as just that. Going to the depths of God and exploring Him and then coming, surfacing to the water and rejoicing in the majesty and the beauty of who He is. So worship takes us deeper, and we've got to know that. We've got to understand that. We've got to embrace that. We've got to know how, how worship is and what we're about. And worship has not always been one of those things that you necessarily look forward to. I'm not saying it was a bad thing. I'm just saying that for centuries and millenniums that worship was centered on death. Not exactly one of those things you wake up in the morning and you just look forward to killing something. Or you look forward to death. But really, worship was based for millennium in death. And it was because of the results of what was going on in mankind. Once sin entered into the world, then right behind sin came shame. And that shame, that embarrassment, that, that, that nastiness of, uh, of the filth of it all was an embarrassment to mankind. It was embarrassment and it was shameful and it, was, and it brought guilt with it. Well, because of that shame right behind that, there was this system that was set in place that really was death. It took death to get past the shame. And so shame led to death, and, and, and death led to this worship in death. It was, it's not exactly one of those things, again, if you're just diagramming what you would like worship to be or think it would be, shame and death and worship in death. And it's, it's, not, it's not a beautiful picture, but really if you just survey the Old Testament and you could just see it all the way through. All the way, you go back to our mother and our father. Aver, uh, excuse me, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, when they were in this utopia lifestyle, I mean, there was, there was no, uh, no inhibitions. I mean, they were not clothed and not embarrassed about it, all right? It was just, it was a utopia where there was no shame. There was, it was, uh, it was, uh, there was no death. There, it was just life. There was no sin. They walked with God in the cool of the evening. It was a beautiful picture. And it was, again, a utopia kind of lifestyle that we would all would want to live in, if at all possible. This, this, this beautiful lifestyle, though, kind of came to a, a, a rude and abrupt interruption whenever they decided that they were going to do things their own way. And God had given them access to everything in the garden except for one tree, but they decided that they would be greedy about that and decided that that one tree was, was what they wanted. It was like everything else wasn't good enough. They had to have what they couldn't have. And so in the midst of that, they chose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
And you know the story if you've been to Sunday school class. When they took of that, that fruit, they died. They died a death. And death is first entered into Scripture in that scenario. That's That's the first encounter. Now, they didn't physically fall over dead, but they spiritually began to die. And if you read Genesis chapter 3, and you can just kind of follow along in, in your own time, just read it, and you'll just see this kind of falling apart, this unraveling, as their innocence is compromised. In Genesis 3, verse 1, it kind of begins there, but it keeps going. And, and then in, in chapter 3, verse 8, you see shame entering into the world, because what do they do? They have to now start hiding themselves and covering themselves up, so they, they, take, a, they take fig leaves or they take branches, and, and they start weaving this cloth together. To cover themselves. Now shame enters into the picture. And again, what I say, it was, it was that shame that ended up leading to death. Because if you go on and you read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, you find the very first animal killing. Whenever the leaves of the branches weren't good enough, and God literally has to reach down into creation, and He makes a covering. Listen to this. This is so Important. He makes a covering of animal skin to cover their shame. Death, shame, sin. It was all mixed in there together. And you find in creation that death comes in when sin enters in. And at this point, from this point forward and throughout, we're going to find that death and worship and shame all fit together. It's just a, it's just a, a horrible picture, but it's what, it is what it is. Because then you go on and you find that Noah, as soon as he gets off the ark. Now remember, Noah, I mean, everything's now, all, everybody else is gone and now it's only his family. And, but even though they lived in this ark for so many months, the very first thing that Noah did when he got off the ark was he built an altar, and he burned a sacrifice. So again, you see, worship being shame or sin, shame, death, and this death worship comes into play. You go on and you read in in Abraham whenever he is following the will of God and he's literally laying his son on the altar, taking a knife to his one and only son about to take his life before God provides a ram and thicket. But why, again, because death and shame and sin are all mingled together. You go on and you read in the book of Moses, in the books of Moses, the first five books of Moses, uh, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament are books that Moses wrote. One of those was the book of Leviticus. And if you read from Leviticus chapter 1 to chapter 7, all you're going to read about is the sacrificial system of worship. And how death constantly comes into play. And if you look at it chronologically, this is kind of when worship becomes first of all, first time we see it kind of fleshed out in a kind of a death scenario, uh, in a system put in place uh, as an act of worship. If you have your Bibles, go to the book of Leviticus. You'll find the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It'll be the third book there. And then Leviticus chapter 5. I'm going to read just a couple of verses. Again, just to lay the foundation of, of, of understanding what worship is in this Old Testament scenario. And it's, again, if you're feeling depressed already, good. Because it's kind of depressing. When you think that, that worship and shame and, 
And all of this is interplaying with death mingled into it. It's, it's not a pretty picture. It's not something that you just write home and feel good, warm fuzzies about. Okay, in chapter 5, verse 5, it says this. In verse 6, it says, And he realizes his guilt guilt and shame fit hand and glove. They're hand and glove together. They fit together so well. When he realizes his guilt in any of these, he confesses the sins that he has committed, and he shall bring to the Lord as his, uh, as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock and a lamb and a goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make an atonement for him for his sin. So again, you see death entering into worship. Why? Because guilt is there. Why is guilt there? Because sin is there. And there's this big disruption from living this life of utopia when everything is beautiful and I'm walking with God in the cool of the evening. It's a beautiful worship experience with God. And then all of a sudden sin enters into the world and then shame enters into the world and then guilt enters in. In the midst of that, death has to come in. Now there has to be death in the picture to cover the sins. This is when the, the, the sacrificial system is put into play here. Now, to keep it chronologically, I want you to go as far over in the Old Testament there to the book of Ezra. So really, if you look at Ezra, Ezra is kind of the, the tail end of the chronological story uh, uh, that we have in the Old Testament. And in chapter uh, 9, you'll find, uh, just to kind of, you'll go past the Kings and Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, you'll get on over to Nehemiah, and then... Uh, Excuse me, before Nehemiah, you'll find, uh, you'll find Ezra. In Ezra chapter, chapter 9. Now, so what we've done is we've started in the beginning. And you see Adam and Eve having to deal with their own sinful nature. And then you see Moses setting up a sacrificial system because of the, the shame and the guilt and the death that has to result in that so that there can be worship. And then you come all the way to Ezra at the very end of the chronological uh, uh, entries of, uh, of the Old Testament. And you find in chapter 9 of Ezra, you find uh, uh, some situations here. And again, talking about reestablishing, because Israel's kind of thrown apart because of the exile. And now they're coming back together. And so they're trying to put things back together in their lives. And so in chapter 9, verse 6, it says this, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to you. My God. Now, can I say again the word shame? Can I say again the word guilt? That now they're blushing and they can't even look at the face of God because of their sin, my God? For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. They're above us. We're drowning in our sins. And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we are kings, and our priests have been given to the land of the kings, uh, given to the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame. There it is again, as it is today. And skip down to verse 15, the last verse in this chapter, and he says, "O Lord." The God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For no, none can stand before you because of this. Sin leads to shame. Shame 
leads to death, leads to worship and death. This sacrificial system that was set up that had to kill lambs and goats and what have you throughout the whole system, it, it, it reeks, it stinks. They literally built the tabernacle, excuse me, they literally built the temple with troughs so that the blood of these animals could flow out. That's how ugly and nasty it was. Now granted, in its time, in its place, it was all that there was. It was the system that had to be. But death kind of fits in that you're going to have to have the death before you can have the worship because this sinful nature that's out there is ever before us. Now you go over to the book of John. Keep going to your right. You'll find the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There has to be something come into play to do away with this kind of nasty death-ridden, shame-infusing worship. And what is it going to be? Who is it going to be? What, what's the ultimate sacrifice that can happen out there? It's going to have to be perfect. And I think we know the story where it's going because in John chapter 8 we see that perfect, guilt-free, sin-free individual on the scene whenever they're at the point of convicting him or tempting to convict him of his sins in John chapter 8 verse 46 it says this which one of you convicts me of sin Jesus is speaking here the reality is that Jesus was sinless Jesus lived a sinless perfect spotless blameless life and the reason we come to Easter and we celebrate with such grandeur is because we finally see that the final sacrifice, the final death for all of our shame and our guilt and our sin has been taken care of. That's why we embrace Jesus the way we embrace Jesus. That's why we bow down to Him. Because He is the sinless, perfect sacrifice that we be made so that worship can take on a new look. In fact, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says this, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. Knew no sin, but God made Him to be sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I call this 101 Christianity, but I felt to conclude this message mini-series on worship, it would not be justice if we didn't understand the full breadth of worship, how it began in a perfect utopia garden and how it fell apart in that same utopia and how for years and decades and hundreds and thousands of sacrifices and billions of sin had to be atoned for again and again and again and again and again until ultimately God sends His Son as that perfect sacrifice so that He became our sins, so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus was born that we might be born again. Jesus died that we might live eternal. That's the beauty of the, of the message of Christ. And so when we come to, to this day or any day, why do we celebrate on Sunday? Because that's the resurrection day. That's the day that we can celebrate this new life in Christ. This resurrection, this new kind of worship. Because the old worship, that the worship for millennium was again sin, shame, death, and worship that led to death. But I want to tell you the new 
kind of worship begins with grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, if not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God's grace begins a new style of worship, a New Testament worship that grace leads to freedom. This freedom leads to life, the worship in life. See, we have a totally new system in this New Testament area in which we live that literally our lives are set free by God's grace and by His grace. We are now set free throughout life, throughout every crevice and corner and area of our life that we are able to worship God. We don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to offer dead sacrifices. We don't give dead things to God, to a living God. We give live worship to a living God. We give free worship because we've received His grace and His forgiveness. It's a totally new day. One in which I'm afraid if we grow up in the Bible Belt, we become enamored with and all, it loses its wow, it loses its punch. That We need to go back and ask God to revive us in worship again. Warren Wiersbe in his great book on real worship, he said, Worship is the believer's response to all that He is, mind and emotions, will, body, to all that God is, says, and does. It's an everything about me thing. Take your Bibles and then we're going to look at the last passage real quickly to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 is, I, I believe, an absolute must read again if you're going to talk about worship in the New Testament. Because what, what Paul does in this passage is he bridges the gap between this dead sacrificial system of worship where shame and death enter into the worship scene and that's all what it's about, to giving life, freedom, lifestyle worship. I'm afraid I look at some churches and I, and I, and I wonder, do they even know this? I look sometimes at our, my own worship and I say, do I even know what live worship is? Or do I have I made it some perfunctory, some liturgy, some kind of, you know, like Vance Havner said, most churches begin at 11 o'clock shop and end at 12 o'clock dull. You know, is, 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 is that what my worship is? Is this kind of bland, kind of stagnant, stale worship? Or is it so much more than that? You know, I think some of us, we, we even worship has become, listen to Dr. Sounding Brass, give book reviews. It has no life, no life-giving element to it. We need to see worship as life-giving. I love this quote. Alfred North Whitehead said it like this. Worship of God is not a rule of safety. It's an adventure of the Spirit, a flight after the unattainable. Remember that statement. Worship is an adventure. It is going to the depths of God and exploring His infinity and, and, and it's, uh, trying to grasp it and understand it and embracing it and coming out deeper we say this in North Point all the time you grow deeper through worship I hope that you are a worshiper here let's read Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2 it says I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice notice that living Sacrifice, Not dead, not bloody, but living, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to challenge you in two spheres of worship today. That as you leave out of here, that I want you to take this phrase with you. I am giving God living worship. And here's the first sphere of of your worship. And that is worshiping God in this inclusive, dynamic, everyday life that you live. It's learning how to worship God in that dynamic, everyday life that you live. Now, the dynamic is, is the idea of fluidity, the idea that things are constantly changing. Now, sometimes you can orchestrate the changes, and sometimes you are handed the changes. Sometimes you plan changes, and sometimes you are, again, dealt the changes. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's just natural. Sometimes it's biological. Sometimes it's physiological. But can you take your life in all of its ups and downs, in all of its hills and valleys, in all of its good reports and bad reports, and can you learn to worship God in that? Can you... Give God living worship. He tells us, he said, don't be conformed. That's the idea of changing. But he said, be transformed. That's also changing. By the renewing, that's the changing of the mind. There's constant change in worship. Now, what the world is going to try to get us to do is to conform. Now, there's a difference between conforming and being transformed. Conform means to take something and mold and be shaped around it. This world has a system out there that it wants you to live by. And it will try to shape your life around it. And when you go through life and you experience life, it will try to shape you. But here's what means to be transformed. It means it's something that happens from the inside and comes out. God wants to do a work on the inside of you that will come and be beautiful on the outside. And as you go through the good day, it's learning how to worship God as He's transforming you. And as you are going through the pit of fiery hell of life, it's being able to worship God through those experiences. And allowing that everyday dynamic fluid, the good, the bad, the ugly, to worship God. It's not just having a quick QT with God in the morning before you leave. That's not worship. That's the beginning of worship. But it's the day-to-day mundane of life. I'll tell you the story about Brother Lawrence, who's a 17th century French monk, who wasn't as educated as some of the other monks. He didn't know Latin at that time. All Mass was done in, in, in Latin. And so he knew French, and so he was, he was reduced as a monk to working in the kitchen. He was reduced as a monk to working on shoes. He had a hundred pairs of shoes that he had to keep fit and ready for the monks to wear on their feet. That's what his job was, taking care of shoes and scraping off dirty food from the plates. But Brother Lawrence said he lived his life in such a way that he realized that every act that he did was worship. He said this. He says, I began to live as if there were no one but God and myself in the world. What if you took your everyday, mundane, horrible, nasty, no good, rotten, very bad days and you allowed worship to come out of them? What if you took those mountaintop, exuberant, can't be any, any better kind of days and let it be worship in your life? Worshiping God is the greatest essential of fitness, Oswald Chambers said. If you, do not, if you have not been worshiping, when you get to work, 
you will not be you excuse me you will not only be useless to yourself but a tremendous hindrance to those who associated with you what if we turned our everyday mundane lives into acts of worship take the dynamic and allow not the world to shape you but allow yourself to be transformed to worshiping God in whatever life may dear you the second way that we have living worship is when life is offered up to God for His use. When we take our life and we begin each day of our life, we begin each scenario of our life, we, we begin each meeting of our, of our day, we, be, we begin each conversation of, of each day, we, we somehow in our mind just take on the frame of reference that I am giving my life to God in worship. Notice what he said there in verse 1. He said to present your bodies. You know, God could take from us anything He wants. He owns it all. He can take your health tomorrow, your relationship tomorrow. He can take it all. He can take your bank account tomorrow. He can take your job tomorrow. God forbid any of that would happen. But what if we didn't get in that mode? It's mine, God. I have it. I own it. But what if we literally took our life and we said, God, here's my life. I'm giving it to you as a present. I'm presenting it to you as all that I have. But I'm giving it to you. It's not much, God. But here it is. I'm giving it to you. That's what he's asking us to do in worship. That's what real living worship looks like. It's when we give and we present it's not presenting that bug project you did in the seventh grade. You remember that presentation? You had to go through that old laborious thing? No. It's like when you were engaged and you planned, guys, and you thought through and you orchestrated the evening or the moment and the ring and the presentation and the music and you tried to get all the stars to align because you wanted that to be a special presentation. What if every day we got up we got on one knee to God and said, God, here I am. You are my groom. I am your bride. I give myself to you. What if we got down in our lives, on our face before God, and we presented ourselves with that kind of attitude? What difference would it make? What if when, we, when it came time to give an offering, it was, it was not giving it grudgingly, but it was giving it willingly and freeful, graciously flowing from us. Randy Alcorn said it like this. He said, He who lays up treasures on earth spends his life backing away from his treasures. To him, death is loss. He who lays up treasures in heaven looks forward to eternity. He moves daily toward his treasures. To him, death is gain. It's all in the perspective of how we're going to live out our life. Am I going to live it for myself? Or am I going to offer myself up to God? Am I going to live allowing the world to shape and mold me? Or am I going to live it making sure that God is transforming me? That I can be an act of worship. Now, throughout this time, I have made a statement again and again. I'm going to say it one more time. We at Grace Point Church do not have worship services. What we do is we create worship gatherings. We create time. We are in time. We have space. We have four walls around us right now. 
and we create an environment. But only you and only myself as an individual will fill that time, space, and environment with worship. So what we want to do is we want to take this time right now and allow you to fill this space with worship. I want you to sort through these questions. Now, this is not an exam. This is not something that will be graded in any sort of way. But this this is a time where you in your own heart and mind center your life on God. And for some of you, as you look past, uh, over the past month, you, your first thing to God may be this. God, I'm sorry for what I've made worship. Remember Matt Redman and the song we sang the very first week I shared? I'm sorry for the things that I've made worship. And what have you made worship? How do you need to confess that before God? I've made it what it isn't. I've made it a consumer product that I consume. I've made it something that I evaluate like it's some performance on a stage. What have I made it that it is not? It's asking yourself, have you built any idols? Have I, have I begun to worship this over that, over you, God? It's, have I found my life, is it pleasing to God? Because remember the very first week we talked about to love God is to please to God and please God is to worship God. Is your life pleasing to God? And is your worship alive? Or is it some stagnant event that happens once a week? Or is it a dynamic event that happens every day that you present yourself to God? What we'll do is this will be your time. During any point of this time, if you feel like I just need to come and kneel here at the front, the front is wide open. If you you are ready to come and bring an offering, the offering baskets cover the front. You can bring your offerings. If you need to come, and we have two crosses here, and just take those sheets of paper and just fold them up and just lay them at the foot of the cross and say, God, I'm confessing this before you, and I'm leaving it here at the cross that I can worship you every day of my life. This is your time. This is your space. This is your time. This is your environment. Will you worship God in it? If there's anything I want you to take out of this message today is that worship doesn't come with perfect scenarios and perfect people. It comes with people who are presenting themselves fully and completely from the inside out to God. And I just thought there's no better way to kind of conclude this series and to bring up a couple people just to kind of share their life. And a couple of commoners, not pastors or whatever. Uh, Commoners in the sense that Everyday life, and how can I turn everyday life into everyday worship? And Kay's up here. Kay has been in the church for many years, since almost the very beginning. But you've taken on different hats in the church and so forth right now. You're working in an office CPA firm and working there. But your family, though John, your husband, is not here today, your family has been highly involved in our Haiti work around the world. Uh, around around Haiti for for I guess the nearly the entire eight years of our church's existence and so forth. What's happened there? What have y'all been able to do in Haiti and so forth over the past few years? Well, uh, basically, I mean, as far as our work through Grace Point and what we've done in uh, kind of working with Joy House Ministries, um, we've wanted to open up an opportunity for just 
people like us to be able to go um, uh, on a short-term mission trip and experience God in ways that they've never experienced before and to just be a part of what God is doing in other parts of the world. And that's what we wanted to provide as an opportunity through Grace Point to be able to do. Great. What captured your heart about the Haitian people? Why them? What, what is it about them that keeps taking you back there year after year? Well, I think um, God placed a love in my heart from the time I was a child. Um, the church that I grew up in, uh, we had members that uh, went to Haiti several times, and they'd come back and um, show their pictures and tell their stories. Um, and I, I saw those as a child. And then when I got in college, um, God called me for the first time to go to Haiti, and I actually was able to go with the same ministry that my home church had been involved in. And I was able for the first time to go and to see those places that I had just seen in pictures as a child, um, meet those people that I had, had just seen in pictures. I was able to go and to see it for myself. And being in the churches and around the, the Haitian Christians um, and kind of tying things in with worship, to see people that I knew had nothing. Um, many of them didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And to be around them and to hear them worship and sing out with all their heart and with passion, um, it, it just worshiping God, it was incredible. It wasn't having a big building, fancy lights and no. all that. It was... Usually a lean-to, lean <laughs> thatched roof, and, and, and just praising God. Oh, that we might him. learn that it's presenting ourselves right. as, they, as they were. Now, John is there on the way there in the Dominican Republic right now on the road to Haiti, right? If everything was on schedule, and of course nothing ever <laughs> yeah. is on schedule, but they, the plan was to leave uh, 4.30 our time. Uh, to head uh, across the countryside through mountains um, and head into Haiti. And if they are on schedule, they actually should be in Haiti at this time. Okay, so. great. So pray for all those ifs that they all yeah. line up in the right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, because there's, a, there's a potential for anything to happen there. I don't That's know if they're still having aftershocks, but uh, there's just chaos in the midst of chaos on top of, the, uh, of, a, of a very... Uh, impoverished nation, so we need to pray for them. Right. Well, how do you see God working now? Well, I want to go back to this past summer, and uh, we went to an area called Grand Savon, and we began working with um, one of our interpreters, who's a pastor, um, Pastor Benito, and his church out in that area. And each day, we went out, and we would share Christ and we'd share Christ and over and over and over we would hear people say I understand what you're saying I hear what you're saying I know I know it's right I know it's what I need to do but not today and that area is very uh, heavily inf influenced with voodoo I mean we could not walk a few feet without seeing another uh, shrine or a relic or a temple or something that was tied to voodoo and um we just faced person after person after person telling us, I understand what you're saying. I know it's true. I know that's what I need to do, but um, I can't do it right now because I have to. And they would literally tell us that they would have ties to voodoo. I talked to a voodoo priest, and he said, this is my way of, of living, and, and this is what I have to do. But now the stories that we're hearing, um, 
the people are afraid to go in their homes right now um, because of the aftershocks and they're afraid to be in buildings. So they're living out in makeshift tents just across the countryside. And Pastor Benito and a couple of other pastors are going out in that area. And those same people that told us several months ago, I can't do it right now, we're hearing that hundreds a day are accepting Christ in that area. And that's, I mean, that's God working in the the midst of a horrible thing. Thank you, Kay, and pass it on to John for taking your ordinary lives and presenting it as an offering to God and being an advocate, being our advocate at Grace Point Church for the Haitian people uh, for years and years and years. And this is not something you're paid because John's right now taking his vacation. Y'all are paying for the own trip. The whole thing. It's an act of worship. Thank you. Talk about acts of worship and just the ordinary common day life. Uh, you had a big game changer. This is Greg. Greg's an insurance dealer. Uh, dealer? Or you call him? Or salesman? <laughs> I, I push it. You push it. All right, all right. Uh, sales insurance in Rogers. Uh, you had a big game changer happen to you about a year and a half ago. What happened? Uh, back in August of 08, bled into September of 08, I was experiencing some physical abnormalities uh, that led uh, me to go to a neurologist who performed some brain scans looking for a, a different diagnosis than what they found, but um, it was basically uh, a tumor was in my head uh, compressing my brain stem that, um, uh, as my wife reminded me, uh, we found out that I had a tumor uh within 24 hours of also finding out that she was pregnant with our second child. Mm. So it was very much a, yeah, low low. she's growing a new life and I'm growing something else. Uh, And uh, so um, they thought it was benign. I remember asking the, you know, doctor, he he said, it appears benign to me. And so how certain are you of that? And he rattled off about five different characteristics of why it was benign. Uh, the only way to remove it was to have a craniotomy go into my head and take mm-hmm. it out. Uh, that was a scary thing because there was, you know, a lot of any wrong move could disable me or kill me or anything like that. So that was a, a scary operation. Not sure, you know, if, if we're going to come out of this, I'm going to get to see my second child or not. But, um, you know, we thought the surgery would remove it and we would just go on with life if everything, mm-hmm. the surgery went fine. Uh, but then two weeks later, the pathology report came back, and it was malignant. And, uh, so at that point, uh, I had to go for radiation therapy because otherwise it was a virtual certainty that the tumor would grow back, and the radiation was to go in and, and, uh, and try to prevent that from happening. So I ended up in Boston for two months, mm-hmm. seven, eight weeks of uh, radiation therapy, and <laughs> looked a lot similar to the way it was driving in this morning. I <laughs> felt like I'd been transported back to... Uh, to Boston, uh, but you know, part of that was not only the, the, um, you know, the way that affected my life. As far as I don't know what road I'm on, uh, as far as the cancer is concerned, and uh, but also being in Boston, being around other, staying at a Hope Lodge with other cancer uh, patients, going down to that basement every day, waiting for my turn on the on the machine. Uh, you know, there are a lot of five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids running around with no hair uh, because they've been through the chemo. They were now going. Through radiation, um, uh, uh, you saw, you know, grown men, people in their 30s, 40s, you know, around my age that had a, a tube that was connected directly to their stomach because the radiation had so 
burn that they couldn't eat or, you know, anything. So they actually literally would pop a can open and funnel, and it would go into their stomach. Into their stomach. And that was the only way they could eat. And, and um, uh, I remember sitting there one day, and a 15-year-old boy was there, and, I mean, his face was so burned by the radiation, uh, the daily blasting of it, that his face was blistering. He was, you know, carrying around tissue because his eyes were watering all the time. His skin was starting to peel off of his face. And, and he told his dad, you know, I, um, if cancer comes back, he can kill me because I'm not going through this again. It was very, wow. to me, very, yeah, it was, you know, I, I started counting my blessings that, it, you know, if somebody had to go through this, I'd prefer it to be me than, than looking at those other parents and their children, you know, yeah. going through What that. a game changer. So you've been back now and have, they're saying the radiation has worked, uh, and you're going, you still go back for tests. And tell us about the perspective that has changed even in recent events. You went to a doctor and so forth, and, and how God is, I think you prayed a prayer when we were talking. You prayed, God, use this, which is, again, not one of those typical prayers most of the time, and I'm sure you prayed this prayer as well, God, take this. But you also prayed, God, use this. How has God enabled you to use this? And tell us a story about that. Yeah, I really, um, you know, mentioned it in our, in our study group, um, our body life group, that, you know, uh, as much as this was a negative, I didn't want to dwell on, on the negative aspects of that or, or how I wanted to somehow, some way, I didn't know how or what or why or, or, or when, but to use this experience that was a negative in, in my life as a positive somehow for God, that I could somehow affect somebody somewhere, you know. Um, and um, and so one of the things that, that I've done since I've been back is I'm not a big reading person, but I've always, you know, wanted, uh, been praying for spiritual knowledge and things like that. And so I've taken more of a, of a focus on um, on doing some studies, doing the Twisting the Truth series, Men's Fraternity, read the Crazy Love book. We're doing a, another study on Revelation. Um you know, that kind of just hammered home the point that you can't just ask for spiritual knowledge without getting up and doing something. Um, uh, and, and, and through that process, I think, here just a few weeks ago, I was in for another scan uh, in a hospital. And, um, and and I walked in. It was going to be a CAT scan, and, and I've been through a lot of MRIs and CAT scans, so I thought I was just going to go in 30 minutes later. I'd be out and on my way. The nurse walks out. She has a couple of Dasani bottles mixed with something. And she says, uh, she says, I need you to drink this slowly. And um, she says, one, one bottle of this per hour, and then we can and do your scan. So that, that was a two-hour wait. I was like, you're kidding me. And she said, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not being a patient person, that was like torture to me. You know, I thought, I've got to sit here and just sip on this, on this stuff for two hours. Um, and, and I'd even texted my wife and just said, I, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a bad place. <laughs> <laughs> More to script, I'm in hell. You're right. Uh, <laughs> it was exactly it. And, um, and, uh, but it was kind of amazing that, that in the process of that, I mean, within just a few minutes, there was a couple other people in, in the waiting room and kind of a, a big discussion broke out about church and uh, there was a, a couple uh, that was sitting over there that was, uh, I guess, in her 60s or 70s, and another lady waiting on her husband. She was that old and uh, in that age range anyway. And then, and then a younger girl, and, and it just became this huge, um, I don't know how to describe it, it just became this huge discussion about um, salvation. And, and, um, and you know, and I, and I think the girl was was looking for, you know, questions, had questions mm-hmm. and, and uh, was looking for answers. And, and um I don't know. Just, I interjected myself in, into the middle of that, and um, and just 
uh, it was kind of amazing because those two hours went by, and you know, and those other people left, and I got a chance to visit with this person one on one a little bit, and and uh, left there thinking, you know, I thought I was going to have to be there for two hours and and just you know wasting my time. And when I left, I felt uplifted that I had made an effort, been a, been mm-hmm. a, a part of, of trying to, you know. Because the positive is is that the conversation continued, and two weeks ago she came to Grace Point Church for the first time. And then last week came with her family. So you took hell <laughs> in a doctor's office and were able to turn it to worship by being available. Thank you guys for being just one, two examples of how to use our everyday, ordinary lives and to not be conformed, but be transformed and be a transformer in this world.